Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello, 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 dear listeners. Welcome back. Another, I think, info-packed or thought-packed episode. Today, I'm going to share with you a little bit of my thinking out loud while researching my notes, my insights, my summary of research that I recently did going a little deeper into the relationship between oxytocin and dopamine. This came about um, from a recent discussion I had with a young woman, a young ADHD advocate, and we were talking about dopamine levels. And it's almost a bit the go-to for people when I ask them, how do you know ADHD is real as a thing? Not as a label for uh, a bunch of observed behavior, which really is what it is, you know, not a psychiatric label, a name for observed behavior. Let's face it, that is what ADHD is. It's not a thing. And so I was trying to explain to this advocate of some of the things, some of the insights we've had, some of the things we found out during our seven years of research, right? And We got to a point where she pretty much said, well, yeah, but there are lower dopamine levels in people with ADHD. And I said to her, okay, well, let's roll with that, right? Let's say that's true. And I'm not here to say it's not true. But there's always more than meets the eye. You know, when they say it's genetic, it's not really the full truth because it's due to epigenetic, epigenetics. You can listen to my podcast with Dr. Bruce Lipton on that. Beautiful, wonderful, great podcast, powerful. And when they say it's due to a chemical imbalance, well, what does that mean? When are you measuring the brain's chemical balance or imbalance? At what point in a, in a child's life, right? We would have to go deeper on that. So that's why I always say these things aren't like, you know, lies or myths. Sometimes I call them myths. But what I'm starting to say is they're incomplete narratives, incomplete points. And that's why I'm a stand. Parents get the full, the full spectrum, right? The, the 360 view of these statements. So when people say, oh, well, people with ADHD have a, a, a lower dopamine levels. That's scientifically proven. Okay. Let's say it is. How come the dopamine levels are lower? And this is when people go, well, because you, that person has ADHD. This is when I say, well, but that's a, a sort of snake eating its own tail. You don't have lower dopamine levels because you have ADHD. Because ADHD, remember, is not a thing. It's not a thing you have. It's not like a tumor. There's no blood tests for it. There's no medical, there's no real medical tests for it. So you can't have the thing. And I'm really adamant here about splitting atoms when it comes to language, because it's super important. 
We're never going to get out of this ADHD uh, epidemic, which it's been called by many experts. We're never going to get out of it unless we split the atoms, unless we look at the words we use to keep it in place, right? So when I said, well, why uh, does this person have lower dopamine levels? Well, because they have ADHD. That makes no sense. I know it makes sense on the surface level, right? If you're listening, parents, you've heard this before. Someone has said it, right? Oh, they have lower dopamine levels. But no one asks why. Well, I shouldn't say no one. But the mainstream narrative just says, because they have ADHD. That's one of the, you know, causes. But as you know me to be questioning all of it and digging much deeper for everyone out there interested. So I'm going to take you along. This is sort of a recap of research I did recently. So I was chasing some information on the relationship between oxytocin and dopamine. And I ended up on the, um, on a website of, I'm just going to give you the right term here. It's the National Center for Biotechnology Information, together with the National Library of Medicine and the National Institute of Health.gov. This is ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. And I'll put this, um, the link to this publication. I call it an article manuscript. The published final edited version of it is online. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. This is a, um, a published piece by Dr. Tiffany M. Love. How convenient is that? Oxytocin is sort of the love um, um, chemical, right? Um, and so I thought that was cool that her name is Tiffany M. Love, PhD. And Tiffany M. Love, PhD, she is at the Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience Institute at the University of Michigan. Translational neuroimaging, they call it. And we have since reached out to uh, Dr. Love to interview her on this. So watch out for an episode where the expert comes in and actually tells me if my interpretation as a quote-unquote parent researcher was way off or if there's some truth to it. So today in this episode, I'm asking you to put on your resonance hat your logic hat. And then when Dr. Love, hopefully she'll confirm soon, comes in and we do the interview, then we can put on our science, our facts, you know, that kind of thing. And if the two um, overlap, that's good news, right? So what happened is I started to read this article and I made some notes. So I'm going to read you some excerpts from this uh, publication online. Again, the title is Oxytocin comma, Motivation and the Role of Dopamine by Tiffany M. Love, PhD. And this was published, it looks like in 2014, although first published online in 2013. <clears throat> so it's, you know, it's eight years old, right? This information's been out there. And again, this is on a government website. This wasn't hard to find. So there were, so, there were so some, some surprises, surprises for me. Because... I found some stuff here, some information that I thought, wait, if that was more known to parents, perhaps we would feel differently about this theory that, oh, well, you have a lower dopamine level because you have this thing called ADHD, when in fact, 
it's not a thing. And if you're new to this podcast and this is your first episode, then I do recommend you go back and listen to some other uh, talks that, I, that I've given around, is ADHD a disorder? Is it real? Just so you see where I'm coming from, because I never want anyone to feel like I'm invalidating their struggles, the friction they have between themselves and their environment. That is not what we do. We validate the struggle. We understand it. I understand it. My son understands it. I get it. But we always say the struggle is real. The label doesn't have to be. How come? Well, that's kind of why we're here. That's what got us here. So anyway, let's dive in. So this article on the website, the National Institute of Health.gov website, again, called Oxytocin, Motivation, and the Role of Dopamine. So here's some of the notes um, I made. In order to introduce this topic further, this paper will review the recent evidence that oxytocin may exert some of its social behavioral effects through its impact on motivational networks, right? So this is a paper that's going to look at uh, the evidence, recent evidence, that oxytocin may exert some of its social behavioral effects through its impact on motivational networks. So this is oxytocin affecting the motivational networks. Continues, finally, a brief comment will be given on oxytocin's potential role as a mediator of salience and valence attribution for objects imbued with social value. I'll save you the translations, but how I see this is that, again, this is oxytocin's uh, role impact uh, on uh, social value, and, and later she gets more into that. Um, it says social interactions can be a source of joy or dread. Yeah, no kidding, right? Depending on the context, we would all agree. Key decisions must be made when encountering acquaintances and strangers first to determine whether they are friend or foe, then resolve whether any action is necessary. And finally, if action is called for, settle on which action is appropriate. This all, of course, goes on in our brains so rapidly, right? So she says, for example, pursue, avoid, attack, right? Such assessments are vital to survival and involve the engagement of motivational processes, which form an internal drive that pushes an organism to identify and engage motivationally relevant stimuli. So what I'm taking away from that is that we are all wired, you know, generally our human operating system is wired to... Uh, uh, you know, encounter acquaintances, determine whether they're friend or foe, resolve it, see if action is necessary, if it's called for, and then to decide what actions to take, right? It's an evaluation part of our operating system. So, so she goes on to kind of chapter it up with prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex, and I'm skipping the kind of scientific language in between, and I made sure that it's not something that's going to mislead, but it basically says the prefrontal cortex may provide top-down processing control to guide motivated behavior. So the prefrontal cortex may provide top-down processing control. So it's sort of top-down uh, uh, basically controls uh, in guiding motivated behavior. Now here's the interesting thing. This is the .gov, right? National Institute of, of Health. And twice already have I read the word may. Oxytocin may exert. Here it says the prefrontal cortex may provide. So this is years of research, scientists, top scientists, still kind of going may. Now think about this. When you hear in the news, oh, 
low dopamine levels, that's ADHD. You have that because you have ADHD. If they were really truthful, and you'll see as we continue, then it should read something like, there are some studies that are starting to show that possibly this may be the reason, but you never hear that, right? That's not, that doesn't make for good headlines. So what parents hear is like, this is how it is. The research is in, signed, the debates are over, nothing to see here, folks, keep moving on, right? That's why I do this show, because there's more to this, right? So now she moved on to the amygdala. Stimulation of the amygdala elicits recruitment of attention processes that boost uh, processing of incoming sensory information and enhance vigilance. The amygdala is well positioned to detect salient incoming stimuli and heighten arousal to aid in response. Neuronal recordings in non-human primates, I think they're talking about rats later on, indicate amygdalar neurons respond to cues predicting future reward and encode reward value and magnitude. So this has to do with, as you know, for you hear this a lot with, with uh, you know humans, I say children, but you know people with ADHD, is the attention process that boosts processing of incoming sensory information and enhance vigilance. And you've heard of hypervigilance, right? Because I think, uh, um, and I don't want to get into details here, but getting your nervous system stuck in the defense mode is a hypervigilance. And so the amygdala, it says, is well positioned to detect salient incoming stimuli and heighten arousal to aid in response. So this all makes sense. And I know it's a bit techy or scientific, and but it, it, you can look this up, the amygdala. This is sort of just to establish what these parts of the brain do. So let's move on to the hippocampus. The hippocampus is also involved in novelty detection and hippocampal activation is necessary for salient novel stimuli to stimulate, stimulate VTA activity. And by the way, VTA is the ventral tegmental area also known as the ventral tegmental area of TSAI, T-S-A-I, or simply ventral tegmentum. And it's a group of neurons located close to the midline on the floor of the midbrain. The VTA is the origin of the dopaminergic... Sorry, sorry, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, by the way. I'm not that smart. I don't, I'm not just remembering this. The VTA is the origin of the dopaminergic cell bodies of the mesocorticolimbic dopamine system and other... Do so, in other words... It has its own like cell bodies that that have um, a dopamine system, right? So it's related, but this is not really the main point of of this article. But again, uh, here Dr. Love is just uh, giving us the different areas of the brain and what they do. So the VTA uh, is the origin, and I just read you that, and it says in the end is it is widely implicated in the drug and natural reward circuitry of the brain, right? So again, this has to do with reward, you know, as we know, um, and this is said to be true for children with ADHD, when you, when you give them a reward, when you kind of excite them about what's, what's coming in the near future, you can get their attention. Oh, it makes sense, right, when we're reading this. So now let's go to the nucleus accumbens, and this is something that one of our podcast uh, guests um, has, has mentioned in the past, um, we were talking about, it was, um, oh man, 
Names escaping me, it'll come to me. But we were talking about the nucleus accumbens. It says, situated within the striatum, receives glutamatergic projections from the amygdala, hippocampus, and prefrontal cortex, and in turn sends GABAergic projections to the VTA. Let, let's, let that sit there for a minute, but here's a, a bit of an easier language as it continues. This region, the nucleus accumbens, is proposed to act in an integrative capacity assimilating goal-directed information from the prefrontal cortex. Remember the prefrontal cortex at the beginning was the top-down processing control to guide motivated behavior. So now we're getting, we went through the amygdala hippocampus VTA, now we're getting to the nucleus accumbens and it says that the, uh, again, this region is proposed to act in an integrative capacity assimilating goal-directed information from the prefrontal cortex, environmental context from the hippocampus, and emotional significance from the amygdala to ultimately influence motor planning and action execution, right? The executive function, action execution through its connections with the ventral, pallidum, and midbrain. So here's the nucleus accumbens essentially responsible for motivation, right? When, when kids are not motivated, again, the signals aren't coming through, and this is parent language, right? And this emotional significance to influence motor planning and action execution, right? This executive skills. So if we move forward, the ventral palladium located within the basal ganglia the ventral palladium receives, sorry, pallidum receives projections from a variety of neural structures, including the amygdala. I'm going to skip forward. There's a lot of like scientific stuff and it's all valid. I just made, I made sure that what I'm reading here really is not out of context. It says the nucleus accumbens is in an ideal position to influence the translation of will into action. Again, the nucleus accumbens we just read before, which is really responsible for motivation, but also the translation of will into action, right? That's the executive function, like get shit done, excuse my language. As will be discussed below, dopaminergic activity within the nucleus accumbens has been identified as a key neurochemical substrate in the attribution of salience. So it's, a, it's, it's one of the key neurochemical substrates. And this is dopamine activity within the nucleus accumbens. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm just reading this. I'm taking this in and then I'm going to compare my summary with their summary at the end. So this is kind of a little bit of a setup, a little bit of a, uh, you know, talking about different parts of the brain, what they're responsible for. This might be something if you want to listen back to it, you can go to the article I'm going to post. There's much more to it. If you're really interested in uh, uh, reading it and understanding it, have at it. I just spent maybe three hours going through this. Um, it, it's, it's dense. But here we go. Oxytocin and dopamine. Stimulation of dopamine receptors located on the cell bodies of oxytocinergic neurons within the PVN stimulates extracellular dopamine increases within the nucleus accumbens. Remember, we just talked about the nucleus accumbens being the motivational center and also uh, the translation of will into action, or it influences the translation of will into action. So a very important part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, that's responsible for motivation and uh, for influencing the translation of will into action, executive function, right? Getting stuff done. And here it says that the stimulation 
of dopamine receptors located on the cell bodies of oxytocinergic neurons, oxytocin, stimulates extracellular dopamine increases within the nucleus accumbens. And since we want a higher level of dopamine, or I guess since we're told lower level of dopamine is not good enough for someone with ADHD, we're starting to hint at it. It continues saying application of an oxytocin receptor antagonist. This is the antagonist. So for putting a receptor antagonist, as in not giving it enough oxytocin, significantly diminishes dopamine agonist stimulated dopaminergic release in the nucleus accumbens. What I'm getting here, again, parent interpretation is if they're putting in an antagonist to block the oxytocin receptors significantly diminishes dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. Huh, interesting. So less oxytocin, meaning less dopamine. Less dopamine, hey, you must have ADHD because you have a low dopamine level. So this is where I started to go, wait a minute. If I can confirm this with Dr. Love or other uh, uh, neuroscientists or you know people who study the brain, we're onto something here. And hey, I'm open that maybe we're onto something, but not really, or we're not onto something, or this is all not adding up. I'm totally open. I'm just exploring this here on this podcast because this is public publicly available information, right? So let's see. Let's continue. Um, so again, less oxytocin significantly diminishes the dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. Okay, let's, let's, let's hold that, right? If that's all you've taken away from everything I've said so far, that is the most important thing when it comes to the relationship between oxytocin, the love hormone, and dopamine, right? The kind of excitement uh, reward hormone. While oxytocin regulates dopamine release. Uh, let's see. Sorry, I made a, made a mistake. I tried to bold something, some statement here. It says, while oxytocin regulates dopamine release, uh, oxytocinergic neurons are susceptible to modulation by dopamine themselves as they also express dopamine receptors. So this is saying they're not really clear or it's not really clear that it's it's only oxytocin influencing dopamine or also dopamine influencing oxytocin. And I believe there's a, uh, a graph uh, that you can also a link to uh, that shows the, the relationship of those, those hormones better, uh, the neuroconnections. So it says this fits well with the notion that dopamine plays primary roles in salience attribution and oxytocin is capable of affecting this activity. So it's clear here that oxytocin has an effect on dopamine. And that's kind of what I wanted to do this, you know, this episode four is to explore that a little deeper. And so now it goes into this chapter of maternal behavior. And it says that increases in extracellular dopamine activity observed in mothers are positively associated with the time spent tending to their pups. And I just need to give you a little content. These are maternal rats that were tested. Um, and let me just see here. Uh, leading up to it, it says, uh, 
the neurobiological systems underlying such maternal drive are still being explored. However, a growing body of evidence suggests both dopaminergic and oxytocinergic systems play key roles in maternal behavior. Dopamine is released within the nucleus accumbens, right? The motivational center, if we just want to call it that for short, for short, uh, shorthand. When a mother rat grooms or licks her offspring or after being reunited with her offspring after forced separation. Again, dopamine is released within the nucleus accumbens when a mother rat grooms or licks her offspring or after being reunited with her offspring after forced separation. That means when that love comes at this little rat pup from the mother, oxytocin is released, influencing the dopamine release. Huh. Okay. Okay, let's continue. Maternal rats exhibiting high levels of pup licking and grooming, right, aka nurture, tend to exhibit larger increases in dopaminergic activity in the nucleus accumbens as a result of grooming their pups relative to their low-licking and grooming counterparts. Again, same concept. They're saying there's a larger increase in dopamine in the nucleus accumbens as a result of this oxytocin-induced uh, 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 nurture that in induces oxytocin release. Such increases in extracellular dopamine activity observed in these mothers are positively associated with the time spent tending to their pups. I'm going to bring it back to people later. No worries. And here's what always kills me on these studies. It says, although less well studied in humans, bonding between mothers and children has also been associated with activity within mesocorticolimbic circuits. Don't, haven't researched that yet, but I'm assuming that this is basically saying that although we haven't studied this much in humans, it is true that this bonding between mothers and children really like, you know, activates the oxytocin and that actually releases more dopamine, uh, dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, right? And then it continues, although little work has been done in this area on humans, some neuroimaging data suggests motivational networks, remember the nucleus accumbens, the motivation, the, the, the effect on the translation of, of, of executive functions, of getting will into action, right? That area. Some neuroimaging data suggests motivational networks are engaged in response to romantic love, right? doesn't have to be romantic. We're talking nurture, love. So what I'm, what up, up till now, what I've heard is very simple, is that when there is love and nurture, let's say from a mother to a child, oxytocin levels go up in the child. Those oxytocin, those rising oxytocin levels or connectors increase the production of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens the motivation center, which often is said to be the, the main issue for children with ADHD. They can't focus, they, they, they're not motivated, they, they, they can't finish tasks, right? They can't uh, uh, put will into action. Well, here we are. Now, where is this going? Almost done, guys. Um, it says in humans, in addition to playing a role in social recognition, oxytocin can also enhance behaviors that lead to increases in the collection of social information. Well, here's a kicker. A lot of 
children that have been diagnosed with ADHD can, will take in a lot more information, hence also includes social information, than their non-ADHD counterparts. It continues, for instance, oxytocin administration has been shown to orient attention toward faces, particularly the eye region. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the spectrum and autism symptoms, uh, our son also was diagnosed with mild autism. Um, it was ADHD mainly, but they threw in the kitchen sink of disorders. It was like six of them. And one was mild autism because he didn't always make eye contact with people. Let me read this again. Oxytocin administration, this is synthetic, right? Oxytocin administration has been shown to orient attention toward faces, particularly the eye region. Again, how do we get oxytocin? Through nurture and love. Huh, okay. And you mean that increased someone to pay more attention and, and you know, focus on faces? And Okay, all right, I'm with you. As such, increased attention to the eye region can increase awareness of social intent and can provide information necessary to making decisions when social context is relevant. Again, this is a, a very often, uh, it sort of overlaps between autism and ADHD, more leaning to, towards autism. Furthermore, oxytocin administration has been shown to enhance memory for social, but not non-social stimuli. All right. I didn't do much with that comment, but it's just interesting. Memory enhancement, oxytocin. Oxytocin improves the detection and classification of positive social and emotional stimuli. Okay. Memory and recognition for positive faces is improved relative to negative faces following oxytocin administration. So let me jump forward. Oxytocin has also been shown to enhance a myriad of pro-social behaviors, including promoting altruism, generosity, trust, and empathy. A lot of those that I just read are often said to not be present in children with ADHD. Support for this theory, oh, I should read it this way. Support for this theory comes from, no, kidding. Support for this theory comes from the myriad of studies showing oxytocin administration leads to increased attention. <gasps> Wait a minute, I have to back this one up. Let's rewind. <laughs> Support for this theory comes from the myriad of studies, not just one, the myriad of studies showing oxytocin administration leads to increased attention. Enhanced memory and improved social recognition. I was like, uh, okay, hold on, hold on. These are all things that my son was said that he will, would have trouble with in life for good. He wouldn't be able to pay attention. He wouldn't have a good memory to forget things. And he, you know, would be ha having a tough time dealing with social situations. But a myriad of studies, this is according to Dr. Love, Dr. Tiffany Love, Dr. Tiffany M. Love, PhD, on nationalinstituteofhealth.gov website, right? This is a public, this is a study you can look up. It's, it's even, what, what did I say, eight years old? This is not news, but this was news to me reading this, right? So it says another possibility is that through its interaction with the dopamine system, 
oxytocin both enhances motivational salience attribution towards social stimuli and provokes shifts in motivational value. Again, summing it up, layman style, parent researcher, there, the affiliation of or the connection between oxytocin and dopamine actually enhances motivational salience, right, in the nucleus accumbens and provokes shifts in motivational value. I mean, hello. That to me was, was huge too. By modulating activity within this dopaminergic network, oxytocin may encourage alterations in both salience and valence assignment. I had to translate that one and I don't want to get into it. It's kind of what the statement above said already. So in their highlights, in their summary, this one sentence stood out. It says, oxytocin may affect social behaviors through its interaction with dopamine. Okay. And it says potential for oxytocin to shift assessments of value and salience via dopamine. Now it does say in the end that, you know, further interactions between oxytocin and dopamine will be reviewed, are still being studied, right? It's how science should be. It's, it's, it's still evolving. But you don't hear about this. And I'm looking forward to hopefully crossing my fingers, knocking on wood, I was two knocks on my desk. Crossing my fingers that Dr. Tiffany Love will, will, will join us and really dive deep with me to hopefully prove me wrong that what I'm, what I'm connecting here, and I'm not done yet with it, there's one more really cool part to this. I think it's cool. Prove me wrong, please, 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 please. Because uh, something resonates here. Something is, is, is to me, is there's a puzzle piece falling into place. And of course, I would love an expert, right, like her, to confirm that. It's the whole point of our show. That's the whole point of our documentary. It's not just for me to have these claims, but for experts to come and back it up. So again, at the end, it says, accumulating research indicates oxytocin plays a significant role in regulating the behavioral and neurobiological responses to stress. I always say stress slash traumas, right? That's a big one. This is accumulating research. So there's not just, again, one. Earlier it said a myriad of research, of, of studies, right? Accumulating research indicates that oxytocin plays a significant role in regulating the behavioral and neurobiological responses to stress and trauma. Now here's the kicker. If you've heard me say this before, if you've listened to episodes on this podcast before, this will sound familiar. I really split the atoms when it comes to what is ADHD, because it's not a thing. You can't have it. I have it, people say. No, you don't have it. You behave a certain way. People observed you. They labeled your behaviors. They then you know, contrasted them with the symptoms in the DSM. And then they said, okay, the label we gave those symptoms, we're going to put on you. That's literally what happens. There's no, there's no judgment there. That's just what happens, right? So you can't have it. But in this case, when we look at these statements, right? What I, what I see is when you say, well, 
someone with ADHD, or let's just say someone has a low dop- low dopamine levels, and you ask why, the answer is because they have ADHD. Now, there's other disorders and other, um, you know, brain, uh, what's the word? There's just other um, situations and other disorders you could look at when it comes to dopamine. But inside of the ADHD context, which is what this podcast is, is for, is inside of, if we look at ADHD and you say, why does someone have low dopamine level? The answer is because they have ADHD. This is where I say, well, according to this study, I don't think that's true. There's a possibility that someone has lower dopamine levels because they had less oxytocin stimulating those receptors, those dopamine receptors, and therefore the dopamine level is low. And again, hopefully Tiffany uh, Love can, Dr. Tiffany Love can come in and and we're going to dive deeper on this. But hear me out for now, if that's true. Then it's not that that person has lower dopamine levels because they have ADHD. No, it's they have lower dopamine levels because they had less oxytocin, right? affect the dopamine levels. And then we could say, well, how come they had less oxytocin? How come it produced less, the brain produced less oxytocin? And I I don't know if that's a scientific term, but right, let's just roll with this. How come the brain produces less oxytocin in that individual? Well, what we just read, accumulating research indicates oxytocin plays a significant role in regulating the behavioral and neurobiological responses to stress and traumas. So now picture when we say, well, why do you have less oxytocin, this individual, right? Well, maybe there was stresses, sometimes traumas. I hate to use the word trauma because people get triggered because trauma doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a little, little, little over time. Some abuse, some verbal abuse, some, you know, parents divorcing, uh, parents always fighting. Uh, It could be stresses during uh, uh, birth, even prenatal stresses, as Gabor Mate points out, in in the womb, right? All these things cause, like it says here, behavioral and neurological responses. And it says that oxytocin plays a significant role in regulating them. So therefore, when you say, why does somebody have lower dopamine? Well, because they have lower oxytocin. Why do they have lower oxytocin? Perhaps they didn't get the nurture they needed, which is a stressor in itself or in a trauma for some kids. Or they had stresses like PTSD, childhood PTSD, extreme, you know, abuse. Either way, that's what we ought to be asking. Because then we continue, well, okay, why does this child, why does this stress caused the behavioral neurobiological responses in this child that caused lower oxytocin level that cause lower dopamine levels? Good question. So I know it's heady, but I hope you're still with me because now I'm just going to read the the last statement and then I'm going to move on to my last point here. So what I then did is I thought, okay, well, I'm sure when that came out, people were like, oh, oxytocin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's relate it to other things. Like, what does that mean? Right. And I came across a study and this is in Newsweek. Now this is 2010, right? So, so these things happened, uh, like I said, this is like 10, 11 years ago. Right. 
And this is an article that said how oxytocin might help cure autism. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, what, what? that's Newsweek? And they're saying, what? And this is 11 years ago and nobody's talking about this. And again, when I say nobody, it's like I've, I have friends with autistic children. I have friends with lots of friends with uh, children with ADHD. No one, no one's ever mentioned this. No one, right? Um, and it's, what's funny is that this reminded me of, um, well, let, let me, uh, before I go there. So how oxytocin might help cure autism. This is an article by Mary Carmichael on uh, February 25th, actually my birthday, 2010. And I'll post a link to that article as well. And basically, these researchers, it's one of the scientists, Eric Hollander, he's uh, the director of the Compulsive, Impulsive, and Autism Spectrum Disorder Program at the Montefiore Medical Center in New York. I don't know if he's still there. I haven't looked that up because that's not really the point right now. But I just wanted to see what they say in there. And... It says that they, and this is uh, a new study conducted by French researchers, 13 subjects with high-functioning autism, aka Asperger syndrome, became more trusting and socially engaged under the hormone's influence. And now this was a, uh, uh, what, what it says is scientists have been experimenting with oxytocin as an autism treatment for years. Oh, so they've been doing this for years. That's good to know. And again, maybe I'm the only one in the dark here, but I, I don't think so. Um, and... It says that researchers have successfully treated some symptoms of the disorder using a nasal spray of oxytocin. Hmm. Now it says it's a small study, but it has big implications and it tracks with findings from other researchers. So this uh, author, the author of this article spoke with one of those scientists, Eric Hollander, as I mentioned. And yeah, pretty much uh, she says, here's an easier to understand translation, Right. And so they go into kind of the brain thing, which means unlike a healthy brain, an autistic one may not recognize human faces. Remember, we talked about that earlier in Dr. Love's study as something special. So it puts them in the same category as regular objects. By boosting levels of oxytocin, researchers may be able to fix that problem, causing the autistic brain to respond to faces in a more normal way. And so this, going back to the article, I don't know if you remember, I just want um, to go back there because it really is, is uh, it's something to look at. And I, I know it's heady, but if you bear with me, I just want to, uh, here, faces, um, okay, I'm just trying to, okay, yeah. So remember it said, for instance, oxytocin administration has been shown to orient attention toward faces particularly the eye region, right? As such, increased attention to the eye region can increase awareness of social intent and can provide infor uh, important information necessary to making decisions when social context is relevant, right? So again, they're kind of saying the same thing, that this oxytocin added to these autistic children actually has caused the these autistic brains to respond better to faces, right? In a more normal way. So that's interesting. And then the reporter asked, do people with autism have abnormally low levels of oxytocin? And Hollander says it's challenging to measure the blood plasma levels of oxytocin. It can be released in blips throughout the day, so it varies. But studies in children have found abnormalities in the plasma levels and the subgroup of children with autism who are the most socially aloof 
tend to have the lowest levels of oxytocin. So they're kind of saying, well, it's kind of hard to measure, but we did the best we could. And we do have some uh, studies or a study that, that shows that the, the autistic kids who are most socially aloof tend to have the lowest levels of oxytocin, right? And it says that there are also studies in monkeys that have measured oxytocin levels in the spinal fluid as well as in the plasma. These studies show if you inhibit nurturing behaviors early in life, this is super important. These studies show if you inhibit nurturing behaviors early in life, the spinal fluid and plasma levels of oxytocins are low and they stay low throughout life. This is super important. It's super important because of what I'm going to say next. In 1943, a gentleman named Leo Kanner, K-A-N-N-E-R, and I'll, I'll link to his Wikipedia as well. He published a paper, 1943, that first identified autism. So I guess we have Leo Kanner to think. Uh, he was a Ukrainian-American psychiatrist, physician, and social activist, best known for his work related to autism. There we go. Before working at the Henry Phipps Psychiatric Clinic at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Kanner practiced as a physician in Germany and in South Dakota. Okay. Ukrainian-American. So he pretty much, yeah, yeah, he pretty much is the autism guy. Now, at the time, he called attention to what appeared to him as a lack of warmth among the fathers and mothers of autistic children. What happened, this is in, uh, in the 50s, there was a term that got coined by him, which was called refrigerator, I can never say this, refrigerator mother or refrigerator parents in the 50s as a label for mothers and fathers of children diagnosed with autism. And what he was pointing to was he noted that the lack of warmth among the parents of autistic children was what was causing ADHD. I mean, sorry, autism. That's what he claimed. Now, of course, the parents, particularly mothers, were often blamed for their children's atypical behavior, which included rigid rituals, speech difficulty, and self-isolation, right? So back then, the mothers got triggered, right? Because it's confronting, when someone tells you, hey, you're not being loving enough with your child, that's why your child has autism. And by no means am I saying he was right. By no means am I saying that's the cause for autism and also, you know, ADHD. If we look at the spectrum, really ADHD, autism, and Asperger's, it's a spectrum, right? They're closely related. I know this podcast is about ADHD, but uh, I wanted to make this point because again, what I'm hearing here is that he was onto something. Because if we compare the, the paper that, um, that Dr. Love here published on the National Institute of Health website and the Newsweek article, right, about how oxytocin might help cure autism, then I feel like if we connect those dots, right, if we say to ourselves, what if oxytocin has actually a bigger effect on dopamine levels than we 
previously thought, right? What if oxytocin, this love chemical, this this uh, uh, hormone or this chemical that is that is basically uh, uh, created upon nurture and love being present in the environment, right? What if that has a much more powerful effect on dopamine levels? Then perhaps it gives us a new like frame, a new framework, right, or a new. Uh, uh, perspective on what we call chemical imbalance. And this is, again, this is a spectrum, right? We have ADHD, autism, Asperger's, it's a spectrum and no one size fits all. But wouldn't it be worth for us, for the establishment, scientific, psychological, medical, to consider that and look at it and say, well, you know, we haven't done a lot of studies on this. I mean, what I could find was mostly lab rats, some human studies, but still, right? There's still scientific studies and they're very accredited. They're very um, vetted, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they are on the National Institute of Health website. Now, for some of you, that's like, yeah, I don't trust that uh, authority, but that is currently uh, the authority that helps reinforce that narrative that the pro-medication, uh, pro-label side uses. So we got to take that into account. So that authority basically says, we, we, we know that's scientifically proven that oxytocin has that effect on dopamine. And so we have many more studies to do, especially human studies on that. But something I believe is there that we're just not willing to talk about out loud, in public, in debates. Because guess what? What I'm pointing to is that this theory would basically crush the myth that you have low dopamine levels because you have this thing called ADHD. We would have to start saying, oh, uh, someone has low dopamine levels, perhaps let's look at the oxytocin in their life, right? How often does it get released? What are those levels like? And I always say this, this incomplete narrative around the term neurochemical imbalance in the brain, right? It's incomplete because there's always imbalances. All of us experience imbalances. It just depends what you do in life at what moment. It depends how often you do it and everyone's brain is different. So again, there's also no one size fits all in that department. But it's really important that we don't just say, oh, someone has ADHD because they have low dopamine levels or because they have a, a chemical imbalance in the brain and then stop there and say, that's because they have ADHD. No, we gotta ask further and say, why, how come, what's actually happening in that person's brain? And then what's actually happening in that person's environment that we, anyone attached in the, it, to that environment or anyone responsible for creating that environment, in this case for children, can step up and, and be responsible and be, feel empowered to make a change in that environment that perhaps calms a child's nervous system down, calm from defensive mode, right, to calm from the sympathetic uh, uh, state to the parasympathetic. Um, so, that's why I wanted to draw a little, little comparison here or a contrast, if you will, and pull in some of these studies for parents to hear. One was an article, one was a study, and the other one is a uh, 1950s label, I guess, that Leo Kanner 
uh, gay parents at the time. And I still believe, even though it was a controversial sort of blame label, I believe he was onto something. He wasn't onto the truth, but I think he was onto a very large partial truth. And it was very quickly discarded because people took it personal. I bet you if they had really heard him out and really respected the research, we could have potentially been a little further along with this spectrum debate. But that's just my thinking. I hope you got some value from this. And I really hope that uh, Dr. Tiffany Love accepts our request for an interview because I'd love to have her listen to this uh, episode so that uh, we can go in and we can kind of break it down and hopefully keep it uh, sort of uh, real for parents, right? Because there's so many scientific terms and so much data. It's so hard. My, my mind is spinning and I've been doing this for six years. So I want to make sure parents get these bite-sized uh, nuggets of, uh, of wisdom or of, of uh, truth or uh, experience, facts, whatever you want to take away from it, right? Mainly resonance. Mainly our mission is to have you resonate with the material because if you don't, there's many other podcasts and movements out there on ADHD that you can join. It has to be a fit for you. If you believe this podcast is not, I thank you for checking it out and you move on. There's no hard feelings. I say, go boy, go girl, right? Or go uh, uh, whatever you know gender identity you identify with, go you, right? You do you, we do us. So thank you for, for uh, listening. Thank you for your attention. It is the most valuable commodity that you own. I always say this. Uh, this is sort of my latest uh, way to thank people for giving me, right? For you, for giving me your attention because it's valuable. Every, everybody wants it. The media wants it, right? Politics wants it. Your family wants it. Your friends want it. Social media wants it. Constantly, we are bombarded with what I call these subconscious uh, attention requests. They may not show up and say, hey, I'm a request for your attention, but essentially, that's what they're all doing, right? They're dancing in front of us, like bouncing up and down, saying, hey, me, 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 look over here, over here, over here, give me your attention, right? So thank you for paying your attention to me. And I hope that we've paid you back with some uh, uh, valuable information, some insights, some new perspectives. Write us an email if you'd like to further converse around ADHD, this podcast, other episodes, or just the movement in general. And we look forward to having you back again in the meantime. Enjoy life, create a magical day. And until then, 